Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. It's good to look out and see old familiar faces, and it reminds me, some of the faces are younger than mine, but they're still old familiar faces. It it really is is to me an encouraging reminder that we are one body, and we are members of one another, and our lives may take us in different directions, and certainly our experiences aren't all the same. But God has been pleased to form in Christ a new human organism, a body. We're not alone. We're not alone in this life. We're not alone in our struggles. We're not alone in the things we suffer. And these are days that, as they say, try men's souls. These are days in which we have to keep our wits about us, days in which we have to keep our eyes in the right place, keep our hope well fixed on Christ. And what a blessing that we have one another, that we're not left alone in that that challenge. Well, let's pray together. Father, I know there is much going on with the saints of this body, with those who are gathered today. I know it's been a very challenging and a distracting week for me as well. And I pray that you would gather us up together by your spirit to be of one mind, one heart, that we would be truly united in a common sense of purpose, a common sense of identity, a common sense of the vocation to which you have called us as sharers in the Lord Jesus. As we have been, by your grace and your power and your spirit, built as living stones into this marvelous sanctuary that will one day take everything up into its grasp, that one day our God will be all in all. And there will be no outside. There will just be the God who fills his creation and floods it with his love. And that the light that we will all know, the peace that we will all know, that truly will pass all understanding. I pray, Father, that that vision would capture our hearts today and bind us together as one people, united in a shared faith, a shared baptism into Christ, a shared Lord, Messiah, Spirit, God and Father of us all. So I pray that you would 
help me in my own distraction that you would gather us up again, Father, and teach us, show us what you would have us to see today. Even in the providence of this day, in the need of this day, your hand is in it. So minister to us according to your truth, according to our need, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing through Hebrews 11, and and just again, a couple things that I really want to emphasize. I know I've done it several times, but one of the things that we learn, I think, from considering Hebrews 11 is, first of all, it forces us or, or compels us, maybe is a better word, to rethink this whole thing of faith, the problem with so many words in our Christian vernacular is that we, we use them all the time. They're a part of our you know, Christianese, but we may not really understand what these things are, what it means to be people of faith, what faith really is. And this chapter helps us in that regard. And related to that and how it does help us is that we see how the writer in in putting together this roll call of faith or this catalog of faithful people, he is actually um, drawing from the scriptural story. He's drawing from the salvation history. He's not just following the text in some sort of exegetically correct way, but, but he's unfolding the purpose and the promise and the work of God in the world and how people of each generation met and encountered and owned and lived out that purpose and that promise. Not just in their generation, but even as it pertained to them, as they themselves were written into God's story, written into his purpose for the world. And so as we've considered the patriarchs in chapter 11 this morning, we come to Joseph, who in some ways could be considered as the end of the patriarchal line. We don't often think of him strictly as a patriarch, uh, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, uh, but as one of Jacob's sons, and as we saw even in the blessing that Jacob issued to Joseph, specifically in his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that Joseph is like the, the end point of the patriarchal generation, with the patriarchal time. Not surprisingly, and the writer draws from this, the book of Genesis ends with Joseph. Joseph is a main character in the book of Genesis, really from chapter 37 all the way through chapter 50. He plays a very significant role. And the thing that the writer particularly draws from as he looks at Joseph's faith is the way in which Genesis treats Joseph's faith. Many things could be cited, but he deals specifically with the way Joseph ended his life. Which brings us to the end of the patriarchal era. And the very next thing that we see is the time has come for God to do this mighty work that he promised. And that's where the writer will go next in introducing Moses. And he'll spend several verses on Moses as well. But importantly, and this is this thing in rethinking faith, is to recognize 
that, and I've said it many times, but I hope we're, we're coming to see it and certainly um, own it. Faith is not holding on to some abstraction or some arbitrary idea of what I expect or what I hope for or what I think God is or what I think God's going to do or what I think God wants. In building his case for the faithful in Israel and ultimately as the faithful in Israel become an example and an incentive to the faithfulness of the readers of the epistle to the Hebrews, the audience for the epistle itself, the writer is emphasizing the fact that faith is specifically and solely ownership of and the ordering of our life around that which God has promised, that which God has bound himself to. It's binding ourselves to God by binding ourselves to what God has spoken, what God has promised. And I think as I consider even what's happening in our culture and and, and in the Christian community throughout our culture, I think a lot of the struggles and the chaos and the difficulties are tied to the fact that we really don't understand this thing of faith. Everyone's running in circles and, and wringing their hands and there's a lot of fear and a lot of concern and a lot of uncertainty because we're expecting God to arise and do a certain thing that we expect him to do. Rather than stepping back from the fray that we're in the middle of and seeing again the vision of the purpose of God for the world in Jesus the Messiah and our place in that purpose. I didn't know what Nathan was going to read today, but I appreciate what he did read because it's very much suited to that, particularly the vision of John in Revelation 5. Many scholars believe, and I agree, that this image of the scroll represents the purpose of God for his creation. And John is weeping and wailing because he looks and he says, nobody can open this and bring this to pass. How will God's purpose for the world be achieved? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, appearing as a lamb who's been slain. Power, dominion, glory, honor belong to him. He has purchased for God with his blood men of every tribe, tongue, nation, people. Made them to be a kingdom and priests, and they will reign on the earth. There was the answer to John's vexation. There was the answer to John's weeping and wailing, his sense of how will this play out? How can this be resolved? It wasn't God saying, John, let me tell you what the next years of your life will look like. Let me tell you how this particular issue in your life, let me tell you about your time on Patmos, how this is going to be resolved. It was set your eyes again on what I have purposed, what I have promised, what I have done and where this is going. And that's what faith is all about. But we live in a time where every person is, just as every person has his own truth, every person is free to have his own faith. This is what I'm trusting God for. This is what I'm hoping for. This is what I think God is going to do. This is how he's going to solve my problems in my life. 
faith looks to the future realization in consummation of what God has promised. And where the writer of Hebrews is going to go with this ultimately is that if all of these died in faith, all of these faithful in Israel's history died in faith without receiving what was promised, how much more we upon whom the ends of the ages have come, how much more we who have seen the substantial fulfillment of God's purposes in the one who embodies not just the person of God, but the truth of God, the work of God, the covenant of God, the triumph of God and Jesus the Messiah is the substantial evidence that the God who has promised is faithful. And we are already raised up in Christ Jesus. If one died, all died. And we believe that as all died, so all who believe are raised up in Christ. We are already sharers in his resurrection. And that present share in his resurrection is the guarantee, the basis of our hope of the resurrection of the last day and the renewal of all things. A kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. There's a reason Revelation ends where it does and how it does. We have to get our eyes off of the things that vex and perplex and disturb and distress us and look again on the God who has pledged, the God who has promised. And that's what the writer of Hebrews keeps doing through these examples. All of these individuals lived out their lives with their gaze set not on some happy place called heaven with golden streets, but on the realization of the purposes of God. The God who has promised will prove faithful. The righteousness of God is not so much a moral category that that God doesn't do bad things, he only does good things. The righteousness of God speaks to the fact that he is altogether right. What he says, he does. In a very real way, he embodies in himself what he says. God is synonymous with his word because he is true. And the great evidence of that is Jesus himself. He is the word made flesh. He is the incarnation of the living, true God. And as the writer turns to Joseph, you see this in, in, in a very intensive sort of way. Faith is always forward-looking. Faith is always set on the God who is promised. But in, in, in the way that he draws out Joseph's faith, he puts his finger on that in a very pointed way so that it can't be missed. Many Christians recognize, and rightly so, the typology associated with Joseph, that he's a picture of Christ in so many ways. And there are all sorts of ways in which we can say yes because of this, 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 and that. But I think often we miss the completeness or the organic quality of that typology. How it is that Joseph really shows us not just one who's a deliverer, one who brings people, you know, preserves them alive in the context of hardship, one who is a, uh, you know, a savior in some sense. But even as he embodies this thing of faith in the context of difficulty, because Jesus was preeminently the man of faith. Jesus was the man of faith. 
not because he had to believe God in order to get saved. We've reduced faith down to this believing of a formula so that I can get forgiven and be saved. Faith is about owning the God who is true. That's what it is to be ultimately human, and Jesus was the epitome of that, the faithful man, the man of faith. But Joseph, we, we, I think most of us know, was God's instrument for preserving the covenant household. But in order that the covenant household, it wasn't just Joseph... Keep these people from dying. They're hungry. They need food. Keep them from dying. Let them come down to Egypt because there's a famine throughout the Middle East. So God says, you know, Jacob, you and your household go down to Egypt so you'll have something to eat so you won't die. It was unto the end, that specific providential circumstance, that that specific circumstance of life was, was serving God's goal to, again, fulfill his promises to Abraham, the inheriting of the promise, but in the way in which God had determined. A great work of deliverance and in gathering. This wasn't just about feeding hungry mouths. It wasn't just about preserving heartbeats. This was, Joseph was a key instrument in God fulfilling his work in the world that ultimately comes to the Messiah himself. Well, as he did um, with Isaac, with Jacob, the writer treats Joseph's faith in really just one statement, Hebrews 11, verse 22. He says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. That's all he says. But again, there are lots of things, if you know the Joseph story, there are lots of things that the writer could have pointed to to show Joseph's faith. He picks this. He picks the end of his life. And I think he did so because it underscores not only Joseph's role in God's purposes for the world, but his awareness of those purposes, and even a sense of his own place in those purposes. See, we get all spun up because we don't know really, we we lose sight of the big picture, and we also lose sight of where we fit into that picture. And I'm not talking about the specifics of, God, what job do you want me to take? What do you want me to do today? Do you want me to marry this person, that person? I'm not talking about that. But we are scripted into God's story to live out faithfully the circumstances of our life in our own generation. To live by faith. By faith, Joseph, when dying, when dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Well, this is taken, as I say, from the very end, the last few verses of the book of Genesis, chapter 50. And he really mentions two things. I'm I'm, I'm calling this faith manifested in assured hope. Faith manifested in assured hope. There are two pieces to this, and I'd like to treat them each separately The first thing is the reminder part. It says, Joseph made mention 
to his family. He made mention to them of the exodus of the sons of Israel. This idea of making mention is not just a passing comment. Oh, by the way, I think this is something that's going to happen down the road. It's Joseph coming to the end of his life and thinking, what are the things that that I need to say? When we went through 2 Timothy in our Tuesday night study, I kept emphasizing, as far as we know, 2 Timothy was Paul's last letter. It was his last correspondence. And so we read 2 Timothy saying, here's a man who does not believe he has long to live. These are the things he felt it most important to say to Timothy. And he asked Timothy to come, but he doesn't know if he'll make it. Paul's at the end. Think about a person on his deathbed. If you were on your deathbed, what would you want to say? What would be important for you in your own heart to pass on to those who are there with you? What would you want to say? Would it be don't forget to take out the trash? The lawn needs to be mowed. The house needs to be painted. Don't forget to go to the grocery store. What would you say? I don't think so, right? Well, in the same way, Joseph, recognizing his life has come to an end and viewing the end of his life through the lens of all that has happened, this was something that he felt it was important to speak of. And so this is him giving voice to something that sat in the forefront of his thinking throughout all those years in Egypt, throughout his life. And certainly throughout all those years in Egypt, a departure from Egypt was coming. And he wanted to remind his kinsmen, his brothers, their families. Jacob's already dead at this point, but he wants to remind his family, this is coming. This is coming in the future. The matter that was the burden to him is that there would be a future day in which God would fulfill his oath to Abraham to give him the land of Canaan. He and his descendants, the inheritance of the land of Canaan. Joseph probably grew up knowing that because that hope, that promise was the very heart of the patriarch's faith, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even the writer tells us, the writer of Hebrews says that they lived their lives in Canaan as sojourners, as foreigners. Not only were they transients, but they were foreigners. That's how they lived their lives in the land that had been promised to them. God had Abraham walk the land, but he never possessed it. He bought the field at Machpelah in the cave there as a burial site for himself. And and he was buried there. Sarah was buried there. Isaac was buried there. But they died without receiving the inheritance. But, But Canaan as an inheritance, and as I've said so many times, it's not just God says, here's a nice piece of ground I'm going to give you because you need a place to live and some farming land so you can raise some animals and grow some crops. 
And we'll see this with the Exodus, that what Canaan represented was God gathering his covenant people to himself to be with him where he was. Canaan represented God's dwelling place, his holy mountain. This wasn't just a piece of real estate to build a house on. This was the promise, and Israel came to even understand that this was a a kind of prototypical fulfillment of, of God's promise to restore and to renew, to undo the exile of Eden. God would bring a people back to himself to be with him where he was, to dwell with him in the place of his sanctuary. And that was Israel's, that was the patriarch's big hope. And I think that Joseph certainly would have been aware of that as he grew. We don't know what exactly his expectation was of that future event as he was approaching the end of his life, as he's dying as he's come to the end of his life. We don't know what exactly his expectation was. And we say, well, it was the expectation of this great delivering work of God. I don't think that Joseph knew that. At least the text doesn't make it clear. Even when God made his promise to Abram in Genesis 15 at the time of the covenant, that there would be this oppression and enslavement for 400 years... He doesn't say in Egypt. He just says in a land that is not your own. And and I'm not going to develop this, but our traditional understanding is that that 430 years was the time of Israel in Egypt, but it wasn't. Even if you do the math, it can't work out. Paul says that the 430 years were from the promise to Abraham, the covenant with Abraham until the Exodus. But it wasn't clear in the, at the beginning and certainly in Joseph's life that there was going to be some deliverance from subjugation and enslavement and oppression in Egypt. When he died, he was the master of Egypt. And the sons of Israel were privileged in Egypt. They had the best of the land. It's when we get to the next step in Exodus 1. Now, after Joseph died, another Pharaoh came along who did not know Joseph. That's when the oppression starts. That's when the persecution starts. So even when Joseph was speaking of a future Exodus, I don't think he was looking at it in terms of God's going to rise and deliver you from your subjugators because there is no such thing. There's nothing like that on the horizon. And as I say, the promise to Abraham did not mention Egypt. Now, it would become that, but it wasn't known at that time. We can't assume that Joseph had that in mind. Well, why do I emphasize that? Because the issue is that what Joseph was speaking about is his confidence in the promise of God. Not that God will deliver you from your troubles, but that God will fulfill his covenant oath to give you the land of Canaan. And if that's the case, then Israel could not abide in Egypt forever. Israel would be 
they, an exodus just means a departure. Israel, the people of Israel would depart from Egypt at some point because God was going to give him that land. And even though at that time Israel was very privileged, the people of Israel were very privileged in Egypt. They had it very easy. They had it very comfortable. Joseph was the master of Egypt. Pharaoh said, even though I am Pharaoh, no one will lift a hand or a foot but by the word of Joseph. Joseph was the master of Egypt. And yet, what's in the forefront of his thinking? The promise of God. That God will bring us and gather us to himself. For all of his power, for all of his wealth, for all of his comfort, for all that God had done for him in Egypt, it didn't distract him or move him away from what the real promise was. And he even viewed his own life and his own ministration in that way. That's the point that I am trying to get at. God's faithfulness was what lay behind Joseph's faith. It meant that one day there would be an exodus from Egypt. See, it's easy for us to think he was hoping, hoping for the day when his troubles would go away, hoping for the day when, when the difficulty of oppression and enslavement would go away. And that will come down the road. But Joseph is, in the forefront of his mind, is keep your eyes set on this promise of God to gather you to himself. In the face of all of the comfort and ease and wealth and power that belonged to Joseph. He was essentially the ruler of the greatest empire, certainly in the Near Eastern world at that time. And he's going to draw out the same idea with Moses, right? He did not consider the glories of Egypt comparable with Christ. And we'll get to that. But see, faith isn't saying it's bad. I believe God's going to make it better. Faith says, I believe God for what he's promised, whether it's good or bad. Whether it's good or bad. So again, Joseph had no, there's no sense in the scriptures that Joseph, Joseph's hope was grounded in this fact that there was going to be future oppression, future subjugation. He died well before any of that came to pass. He didn't have a supernatural insight into what the future would hold in terms of, you know, a new Pharaoh and, and the fear of the Pharaoh and the people beginning to be oppressed and put to work. He, he didn't have a supernatural insight. His expectation, this thing in the forefront of his mind that he had to remind his brethren of before he died, his longing His expectation derived from simply the God who is faithful and will gather his people to himself. So he makes mention of this coming exodus, and then he also includes himself in it. He secondly says, when God does this, take my bones. Already when Jacob died, he said, don't bury me here in Egypt. Take me back. Bury me in the cave in the field in Machpelah, where my fathers are buried. And they do. They make a procession back to Egypt. 
or back to Canaan. Pharaoh makes all this provision for them to go back and take Jacob's body and bury him in Canaan. And then they all come back to Egypt. It's a famine. Egypt is the only place where there's food. Egypt is the only place where there's security. But they come back. But the point here, I think, is that Joseph's burden in dying is to again remind his countrymen of what it is that lies in the future. Don't get distracted by ease. Don't get distracted by expectations. Don't get distracted by all this stuff. Keep your eyes on what it is that God has promised. And not just in a generic sense, but the people of Israel were the offspring of Abraham. They were the instrument through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. They had to keep a sense of their own vocation. What what is God doing with us? Where is this all going? Where do we fit into this? Joseph reinforced that reminder by emphasizing that he held himself to the same expectation. The the faith that he was calling them to, to keep their eyes fixed in in, in, in the, the God who would be faithful to what he promised, he said, I stand in that same expectation. I share that same faith. When God does this, and he doesn't say, uh, you know, I had a word from the Lord and it's going to be next week. Or I found a verse in the Bible that says it's going to be in five years. He simply says, when. When God does this work. And Joseph had no idea how long this would be. He had no idea how this would play out. He didn't know subjugation was coming. He simply said, when God does this, take my bones. So he obviously knew that he wasn't going to live to see it. He wasn't going to live to see it. But he too clung to the assurance of the future inheritance of Canaan. He was determined that when God brought out Abraham's descendants and led them to the promised land, that he would be a part of that joyful procession. He would be a part of that. So just as the writer did with Jacob, he chose, as I said, to demonstrate Joseph's faith as it expressed itself at the very end of his life. He chose that particular time and circumstance to demonstrate Joseph's faith. He did the same thing with Jacob. But one of the things that's interesting here is that he uses a different verb to talk about Joseph, that Joseph's death, the faith associated with his death. With Jacob, he used a much more common verb, which really kind of carries the connotation of just expiring. What we would say breathing is last, the end of biological life, so to speak. Dying. The stopping of the heartbeat, the breathing your last. But with Joseph, he used a different verb. It also denotes the idea of dying, but it connotes the idea of death as being the completion of a life. And so it's more focused on the significance of death, particularly in relation to Joseph, but the significance of death rather than the mere fact of it. 
not the cessation of biological processes, but the death, but death as bringing a completion to the life of the faithful, one who is faithful. And, you know, I see that and I say, why would the writer do that? He doesn't use that verb anywhere else. And it's not all that common in the New Testament. So clearly it was an intentional thing. What was the point he was trying to make with Joseph that would cause him to use this different verb when just the verse before he uses a much more common word? These are things that we should take into consideration as we say, okay, what is the writer trying to get at? Well, is he saying that the, the Jacob and the others weren't faithful? Um, well, they clearly were. They ran their race. They ran their race in their own generation. They fulfilled their own calling in their own generation. In that sense, their death was also a completion, a completion of their life. But I think it's because of the specific emphasis that he has with Joseph. Faith is always a forward-looking thing, but as it dealt with Jacob, it's Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph, blessing Joseph in his sons. Well, that has a forward-looking thing, the greatness that will come in those sons. It does have a forward-looking quality to it. But it's much more of an implied thing. It's much more of a subtle thing. By faith, Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph. It's bound up in it, but it's not explicit. Whereas with Joseph, he makes that issue of expectation and longing the explicit issue. He reminded his brethren of the coming exodus. And he charged them to have him be held in lieu of that. When this happens, take my bones with you. Joseph's faith in the way the writer expresses it explicitly shows that future hope. And even more, his own confidence in his share in it. It wasn't just this hope, I know God's going to do this one day. I know God's going to fix everything. I know God's going to renew everything. I know, you know, the parousia and the return of the Lord and the renewal of all things. Joseph didn't simply say, I know that God will do what he said he's going to do. He said, I know that I will be part of what God's going to do. And there's a difference between that. It's kind of analogous, and I think to some extent we probably all struggle with it. I know I do. It's easy to believe that God loves his people. It's, it's harder in our life circumstance to believe that God loves us. Because we know ourselves. And we know our failures it's easy to, it's like this thing again of, of we can love this concept of the church, but do we love people? Do we love the saints? That's a very different thing. In the same way, we can have this grand and glorious hope of what God's going to do for his creation, but do we situate ourselves within that? And do we let that reality inform the way we live now? and where our hope stands, and where our confidence stands, and how we think about the trials and the difficulties, the things of life that distract and distress us. 
I think for what it's worth, the writer made that switch in order to emphasize that the completion, see, he's stressing Joseph's death as a completion. But the very fact that Joseph is saying, remember, and when it happens, take my bones. The writer is, in my mind, saying really that apparent completion wasn't really the completion. Joseph sensed that his death, and, and, or, or not Joseph's sense, but the, our human sense that death is the completion of a life, in some sense it is, but the actual completion of Joseph's life and his purpose in life would be completed when God fulfilled his promises. Joseph, too, died in faith, not receiving what was promised. So Joseph, as I said in closing, he presents this kind of hinge between the patriarchal period, the time in which the promises were made, the patriarchs lived in faith of them, and the time in which the descendants of the patriarchs actually came to inherit the promises. The promises in the sense of God saying, I will bring you out, I will bring you to be with me in a particular land that I have covenanted to you. A physical fulfillment of the promises of God. And so Joseph's faith, in a sense, as he comes to the end of his life, that's the very end of the book of Genesis. If, if you look back there, the end, uh, chapter 50, we'll just read those last few verses. This is the way the patriarchal period ends. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machi, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you. He will bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely provide for you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. This taking care of you is keeping you against that day when he will fulfill this word. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a sarcophagus in Egypt. He wasn't buried. That's the end of the patriarchal period. In many ways, his faith, as it looked forward to the promises of God, summed up the faith of the fathers before him, just as it closes out the Genesis narrative. And the very next step is the time coming. God arising, Genesis, or Exodus 1 and 2. The text completely skips over all those intervening years and jumps to the time that Joseph died in the hope of where God would indeed fulfill his word. Dumbrell says the long and distinct Joseph narratives close the book of Genesis as the theme uh, in the Jacob cycle was the establishment of the 12 tribes of Israel. The theme of the Joseph narratives is Israel's remarkable preservation outside of God's sanctuary land, the promised land. As such, the Joseph account functions as a bridge between the patriarchal narratives and the book of Exodus. 
tying the promises to the fathers with the pending occupation of the land. Joseph is presented as the preserver not only of Israel's traditions, but of Israel herself, the preserver of the people. So I think as the writer considered Joseph, and again, he's following the way the text lays these men out. He's not just arbitrarily picking people. He's following the story and how the faithfulness of men followed through the story of the outworking of God's purposes for the world. It underscores what what is so important for us to get, which is what faith is really all about. It's not abstract hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not believing that God is good in some nebulous way, that he's going to fix this or solve this or do this or do that. Faith is owning what God has promised. And in order to own, and that ownership means ordering our lives, our minds, our hearts, our lives around what God has promised, what he is doing. But we can't do that if we don't know what he's promised. And as I said earlier, I think that one of the great struggles that the Christian church in this country is having is that to a large extent Christians don't even know what it means to be Christians and they certainly don't know the big plan of God how can they be faithful when they don't know what God has promised all they can do is say I think God is good I found a verse The Spirit told me, the Spirit showed me, it's going to be this, it's going to be that. The rapture's next week. No, the rapture's not next week. They're going to lift this COVID restriction. No, it's going to, you know, you see what I'm saying? We just get wrapped and spun up around all these things. And we, because we don't have some, we, we don't have a foundation. We don't have something to fix our gaze on. Joseph's faith was directed towards what God was doing, and he understood his own place in it. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't know what was coming in the immediate future, but he knew that God had scripted him into that purpose, and he needed to be faithful in his own generation. Joseph suffered a lot, but he could say God intends this for good. We don't always know what that is. Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for good. The good is in the outcome, not in the particulars. The particulars are often not very good. And the world does operate in rebellion against God. To the extent that we're not fully transformed in Christ, there are aspects of our thinking our orientation, our practice that works against the truth of God. But the glory of the sovereignty of God is that in all of these things that oppose and and contradict 
and violate the truth of his purposes for his world and who he is. Through all of that, he's accomplishing his end. And the great focal point of that is the Messiah himself and his cross. The last thing that the Jews could get their head around is that this God of Israel who had promised to return and to arise and to destroy the subjugating power and to reestablish his throne and his kingdom, his rule in the world, reestablish his presence in his sanctuary, that God would be king in the earth, that that could be happening through the unbelievable, unimaginable death of this man on a cross. And yet what was over his head? The king of the Jews. Take it down. The Messiah can't die. He certainly can't die at the hands of Rome. He's supposed to conquer Rome. Faith is not looking to what we expect, to the way we can connect the dots to what we hope for. It is owning what God says is true. And often that holds us in a place where we can't connect the dots. Joseph couldn't always connect the dots. Certainly, Abraham had to try to put together two things. This is the son in which all of my purposes for the world are bound up. Now sacrifice him and kill him. Wait, God, how can that be? Doesn't make any sense. Joseph not only could see, bind himself to what God had promised that Joseph wouldn't live to see, but he recognized that even in death, he would have a share in that. Death wasn't going to separate him from his place in the purposes of God. Joseph was going to participate in this great delivering and gathering work. And yet I believe that Joseph, just on the basis of what the writer of Hebrews says, Joseph also had some sense that that this was bigger than simply keeping my bones, my remains in a box for however long until they can be carted, you know, uh, across Sinai and and be buried in, in the land of Canaan. Yes, he understood Canaan to be what God had promised. Yes, he understood and believed with all his heart that God would give Canaan to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yes, he said, take my bones that I would be with you there. But as the writer said, all these recognized that they were ultimately looking for a better country. A city with foundations whose maker and builder is gone. None of the patriarchs, and I would argue Joseph as well, believed that Canaan was the end of God's purposes. As I said, Canaan symbolizes God's dwelling place, but even more than that, God's dwelling place with his people. Canaan symbolizes sacred space, the place where heaven and earth come together the place where God is present, ruling, reigning over his creation with his people in the center. And therefore, Canaan was not the fulfillment and the loss of Canaan was not the end of the story. This is how Paul can say Abraham understood that he was to be heir of the world, heir of the earth, not just a particular land.
Joseph couldn't have known the particulars that were coming, but his faith understood that his own destiny, his completion, lay beyond this life that he had lived that was now coming to an end. It lay even beyond simply his bones being buried in Canaan. I think the writer is emphasizing that in his own way, at his own place in the salvation history, Joseph too understood that his completion lay in the completion that God had for the whole world. And so it is with us. So it is with us. You all hear me say it all the time. And with this, I'm done. I I think it's a huge travesty and, and a detriment to the church that we've allowed this thing of dying and going to heaven to become the issue in our sense of who we are and what this purpose is. What is God doing? How do I fit into this? And I often say to people, have you ever wondered why the New Testament says virtually nothing about this thing that we call dying and going to heaven? Because it really doesn't care about it. I mean, it does in the sense that Paul says, uh, you know, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, and to be with Christ is better by far. But being with Christ is not summed up in this idea of our soul sitting in a place called heaven. Paul said that is a waiting time. That is a longing time. That is an incomplete time. That is a time in which we're still waiting for our completion, which is not even just the resurrection of the body, but the summing up of everything, the renewal of all things and our place in that, collectively but individually as well. That's where our eyes have to be. The medieval period, and it was a way in which the Catholic Church cultivated its power, but it nurtured this idea that life now is all about making sure that I go to heaven rather than to hell. Because that's the end point. Do I go to heaven? Do I go to hell? Well, you stay connected with the church because they have the power of the keys. And and this comes through the sacraments and through the church's mediation of the righteousness of Christ so that you won't go to hell. But if you commit a mortal sin, you got to get it absolved through the sacraments because otherwise you lose the grace of life. And then you, so it's all about, do I, do I go into this place or do I go into this place? And so much of that is carried through even to the present day. Am I going to go to heaven or am I going to go to hell? We should be saying, what is the human vocation? What is the purpose that God has for his human creatures, his image bearers? And where do I, how, what is it for me to become a sharer in that? What is the destiny that God has? And I'd like to just conclude by reading a little bit with you, if you want to flip there. As I said earlier, there's a reason that Revelation ends where it does. John's closing vision is of this thing that we call the New Jerusalem. John doesn't say, I looked and I saw, and there were souls going off to heaven. He says, I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
Heaven in the scriptural sense is the realm that God inhabits, but it's the realm that he inhabits in relation to the world that he's created. Before anything was created, there was God. He's not anywhere, he just is. Heaven is the realm that he inhabits, but in relation to the creation that he's created. And what we see here in this context is the merging of heaven and earth. I saw a new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away. No longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. What does Jerusalem represent? The dwelling of God. If God's glory fills the earth and heaven is God's dwelling place, heaven coming together with earth, it now comes into this imagery of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where God is enthroned. And the city is portrayed as what? A perfect cube, the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The dwelling of God is his bride. Even as the church is the dwelling of God is his bride. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. The angel interprets this vision of Jerusalem coming down to the earth. What does that mean? How should we understand this vision? It means that God is now dwelling. He's taking up his habitation among men, dwelling among them, such that they are his people and God himself is among them. And he shall wipe every tear away from their eyes and there shall no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, these things are faithful, they are true. They are true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. I will be his God. He will be my son. People often ask me, is this in the future or is this now? What do we do with this? And and I answer, yes. It can only be true in the future if it is true now. What do I mean by that? Because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus the Messiah. And what is fundamentally being depicted here is the merging of God's realm and the human realm, the earthly realm, the created realm, such that God is among his people. He dwells with them. And he has overcome the curse. He has overcome death. He has overcome all of the ills of this fallen world. And that reality is substantially yes and amen in Jesus the Messiah. We are already raised up in him. If any man believes in him, he has passed out of death into life. He has overcome death. Jesus is in himself the merging of heaven and earth. Think again about John's prologue. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. We beheld his glory, not the glory of the Shekinah in the, in the temp- tabernacle or the temple, 
We beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What is being pictured here in visionary way is what God has accomplished in Jesus. Now, is it consummately true? Do we see the renewal of the whole creation? No. But if you read Romans 8, Paul says that this thing that God has accomplished in Jesus is poised for its consummate realization. The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but the will of God, unto the end that it should also participate in this redemption that is in the Messiah. So the creation is waiting for the revealing of the children of God. When we are fully restored, fully renewed in the resurrection, then the creation itself will enjoy its own share in this this renewal in the Messiah. That's what our faith is tied to. Not, gee, I'm glad I get to go to heaven. And yes, to be with the Lord is better by far, but we are already with the Lord, aren't we? Lo, I am with you always. John 14, when we were in John's gospel, I'm going to prepare a place for you, is not about us going off to heaven when we die. Jesus is saying, this is the meaning of what you're going to see tomorrow when I die on that cross. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And my Father and I will come in the Spirit and we will make our place with you. We will dwell with you. And the reality that as I am in the Father and the Father is in me, then you will be in us in that way. And so you will also be in one another. This is far more glorious, saints, to me than simply, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? It's to say, what is it to be human? What is the purpose of God for his creation? What is it to actually fulfill our own created identity and function? That's what righteousness is all about. That's what God has ordained. And we're to walk that out now. Joseph was faithful in his own generation. He didn't know how all the particulars were going to play out, but he knew that the God who had promised would accomplish what he said. He knew that the God who had promised would accomplish what he said. And we are those who have seen the substance of that miraculous, mighty, all-transforming work in the resurrection of the Son of God. And as sharers in him, what excuse do we have for our faithlessness? What excuse do we have for our fear? What excuse do we have for our distresses and our hand-wringing? And what about this and what about that? All these died in faith without receiving what is promised. We've received the promises. We're waiting for the consummation of them. But what we presently have is the substance and therefore the guarantee of what is to come. May we be people of faith in our own generation. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by these things. These are things that should lift our hearts. These are things that should fill our days with song, with rejoicing. We all get beat down. We all suffer distress. We all experience life in a world that is not what it ought to be. But we know 
through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that you have in him already overcome death and pain and suffering and loss. All of the things that make this world what it not ought to be, all of the things that contradict your love and your purpose and your goodness. But you have triumphed. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to take the scroll and loose its seals. And in him we are a kingdom and priests and we will reign on the earth. Father, may we encourage one another with these things. May we spur one another on towards the love and the good works, the works that are consistent with new creation, the works that are consistent with a new mind, a new man, a new life. May we help each other, strengthen each other, encourage one another, spur one another. And may we recognize that we don't do this thing called life in Christ alone. If we do, we lie against the truth. We are living stones built into a spiritual house in that way offering spiritual sacrifices, sacrifices of the spirit that are acceptable to our God in Jesus our Lord. Father, these are glorious things and I pray that you would help each one to think on these things, pray on these things, meditate on these things, be encouraged and edified by these things and draw ever closer to you finding all peace and rest, stability, security, settledness in our God who has triumphed. May we be true witnesses of that triumph in the world and amongst one another, that Christ would be exalted in the church and in the world. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.